Emma, Volume 1, Part 6, Chapters 16 through 18. In Chapter 16, we get a great deal of Emma's thinking after the unfortunate and embarrassing, though comical to us, episode of Mr. Elton's proposal to her. The first few paragraphs of this chapter are an excellent example of Jane Austen's style, referred to as the free and direct style, in which the third-person narrator is sometimes expressing the thoughts of a character, in this case Emma. It is called free and direct because these thoughts are not expressed as a direct quotation. In these first few paragraphs, we will move from the narrator to Emma, back to the narrator, to a rare example of an interior monologue, something that is expressed in quotation marks, and then back to the free indirect style again. Quote, the hair was curled and the maid sent away, and Emma sat down to think and be miserable. Now that's the narrator speaking. It was a wretched business indeed, such an overthrow of everything she had been wishing for, such a development of everything most unwelcome, such a blow for Harriet. That was the worst of all. And these are the thoughts of Emma in this free, indirect style. Every part of it brought pain and humiliation of some sort or other, but compared with the evil to Harriet, all was light and she would gladly have submitted to feel yet more mistaken, more in error, more disgraced by misjudgment than she actually was, could the effects of her blunders have been confined to herself. And that's the voice of the narrator. Now this next part is an interior monologue set off by quotation marks. If I had not persuaded Harriet into liking the man, I could have borne anything. He might have doubled his presumption to me, but poor Harriet. How she could have been so deceived. He protested that he had never thought seriously of Harriet, never. She looked back as well as she could, but it was all confusion. She had taken up the idea, she supposed, and made everything bend to it. His manners, however, must have been unmarked, wavering, dubious, or she could not have been so misled." End quote. And these are the thoughts of Emma again, without quotation marks, and in the third person. Emma goes on to reflect on the events of the past few weeks with this new awareness. Quote, Certainly she had often, especially of late, thought his manners to herself unnecessarily gallant. But it had passed as his way, as a mere error of judgment, of knowledge, of taste, as one proof among others that he had not always lived in the best society, that with all the gentleness of his address, true elegance was sometimes wanting. But till this very day she had never for an instant suspected it to mean anything but grateful respect to her as Harriet's friend." To Mr. John Knightley was she indebted for her first idea on the subject, for the first start of its possibility. There was no denying that these brothers had penetration. She remembered what Mr. Knightley had once said to her about Mr. Elton, the caution he had given, the conviction he had professed, that Mr. Elton would never marry indiscreetly, and blushed to think how much truer a knowledge of his character had been there shown than any she had reached herself. It was dreadfully mortifying. Contrary to the usual course of things, Mr. Elton's wanting to pay his addresses to her had sunk him, in her opinion. 
His professions and his proposals did him no service. She thought nothing of his attachment and was insulted by his hopes. He wanted to marry well, and having the arrogance to raise his eyes to her, pretended to be in love, but she was perfectly easy as to his not suffering any disappointment that need be cared for. There had been no real affection, either in his language or manners. He only wanted to aggrandize and enrich himself. And if Miss Woodhouse of Hartfield, the heiress of 30,000 pounds, were not quite so easily obtained as he had fancied, he would soon try for Miss Somebody Else with 20 or with 10, end quote. This reference to Emma being worth 30,000 pounds presents a good opportunity to talk about money and how much it is worth. That 30,000 pounds as an inheritance meant that if invested in government bonds that paid 5%, that would give her an annual income of about 1,500 pounds, which is a fairly significant amount. At the time of the novel's publication, the population of the United Kingdom was around 12 million, and only about 2% of the population, or around a quarter of a million people, had an income of more than £700 a year. To try to put this into perspective, the poverty line at this time was about £50 a year. When Jane Austen's father married in 1764, his living as a reverend was £100 a year, plus whatever he could realize from 200 acres of land. As I said, 50 pounds was the poverty line. Some sample incomes from this era. Skilled laborers and artisans could expect to make about 55 pounds a year. Agricultural laborers, around 30 pounds. Clergy, farm owners, and schoolmasters, around 120 pounds a year. Shopkeepers, around 150. Miners, around 40 pounds. Seamstresses, around 20 and governesses around 12 to 20 pounds a year, in addition to room and board. So if the poverty line is 50, you can see how much below that governesses must subsist on. And this will come up later in connection with Jane Fairfax. So Emma, just on the interest on her estate, could realize about 1,500 pounds a year, which is about 15 times what Austin's own family had to live on from her father's income as a clergyman. So Emma is indeed rich. Returning to the chapter, Emma speculates on the Elton family in comparison to hers, noting that the Woodhouses had been settled for several generations at Hartfield, the younger branch of a very ancient family, and that the Eltons were nobody. The landed property of Hartfield certainly was inconsiderable, being but a sort of notch in the Donwell Abbey estate, to which all the rest of Highbury belonged. This tells us that Donwell Abbey, which is where Mr. George Knightley is the owner, is much greater in land holdings than hers. Still, in comparison to her own family, the Eltons are nothing. But Emma is, if nothing else, honest with herself. The narrator tells us this. After raving a little about the seeming incongruity of gentle manners and a conceited head, Emma was obliged in common honesty to stop and admit that her own behavior to him had been so complacent and advising, so full of courtesy and attention, as, supposing her real motive unperceived, 
might warrant a man of ordinary observation and delicacy, like Mr. Elton, in fancying himself a very decided favorite. If she had so misinterpreted his feelings, she had little right to wonder that he, with self-interest to blind him, should have mistaken hers. The first error and the worst lay at her door. It was foolish, it was wrong to take so active a part in bringing any two people together. It was adventuring too far, assuming too much, making light of what ought to be serious, a trick of what ought to be simple. She was quite concerned and ashamed and resolved to do such things no more. So this passage tells us that Emma, despite her errors and faults, does have a good deal of self-awareness up to a point, and she can accept the fact that she has been at fault. However, it is not a complete revelation, for she says, Oh, that I had been satisfied with persuading her not to accept young Martin. There I was quite right. That was well done of me. But there I should have stopped and let the rest to time and chance, end quote. So she still thinks she did the right thing in persuading Harriet not to accept Mr. Martin's proposal, but she thinks she did wrong in trying to fix her up with Mr. Elton. In the very short chapter 17, the Woodhouses receive a letter from Mr. Elton saying that he is leaving for Bath in a few weeks. Bath is a very fashionable social center and is famous for its spas. Mr. Elton writes a very gracious letter to Emma's father and mentions Emma not at all, which Emma recognizes as a snub of her. But she is more concerned now with her friend Harriet and the grief that Harriet must feel and decides that her second duty now, inferior only to her father's claims, was to promote Harriet's comfort and endeavor to prove her own affection in some better method than by matchmaking. So she has at least learned something from her matchmaking fiasco, if not the complete lesson. Chapter 18, the last chapter of Volume 1, is entirely concerned with Frank Churchill. It begins with the statement, Mr. Frank Churchill did not come. It goes on to say that Mrs. Weston was exceedingly disappointed, much more disappointed, in fact, than her husband. Mr. Weston is able to rationalize it, thinking that if Frank comes a couple of months later, it will be okay. Of course, this is discussed by the people in the town, and it is one of those debate chapters because Emma finds herself once again in the position of arguing with Mr. Knightley. Quote, and to her great amusement, perceived that she was taking the other side of the question from her real opinion and making use of Mrs. Weston's arguments against herself, end quote. You may recall that a few chapters ago, Emma had felt that it was Frank's obligation to his father and Mrs. Weston to pay them a visit, and she was quite disappointed that he had not fulfilled this social obligation. But when Mr. Knightley takes that very position, she finds herself taking the opposite position, as she so often does with Mr. Knightley. The Churchills are very likely in fault, said Mr. Knightley coolly, but I dare say he might come if he could. I do not know why you should say so. He wishes exceedingly to come, but his uncle and aunt will not spare him. I cannot believe that he has not the power of coming. If he made a point of it, 
it is too unlikely for me to believe it without proof. And Mr. Knightley goes on to say this, It is a great deal more natural than one could wish that a young man brought up by those who are proud, luxurious, and selfish should be proud, luxurious, and selfish too. If Frank Churchill had wanted to see his father, he would have contrived it between September and January. A man at his age, what is he, three or four and twenty, cannot be without the means of doing as much as that. It is impossible. That's easily said and easily felt by you, who have always been your own master. You are the worst judge in the world, Mr. Knightley, of the difficulties of dependence. You do not know what it is to have tempers to manage. It is not to be conceived that a man of three or four and twenty should not have liberty of mind or limb to that amount. End quote. And Mr. Knightley says further that there is one thing, Emma, which a man can always do if he chooses, and that is his duty, not by maneuvering and finessing, but by vigor and resolution. It is Frank Churchill's duty to pay his attention to his father. He knows it to be so by his promises and messages. But if he wished to do it, it might be done. A man who felt rightly would say at once, simply and resolutely, to Mrs. Churchill, Every sacrifice of mere pleasure you will always find me ready to make to your convenience, but I must go and see my father immediately. I know he would be hurt by my failing in such a mark of respect to him on the present occasion. I shall therefore set off tomorrow. If he would say so to her at once, in the tone of decision becoming a man, there would be no opposition to his going. They go on, making this argument back and forth. Despite Emma's protest, Mr. Knightley feels strongly that this is Frank's obligation. A sensible man would find no difficulty in it. He would feel himself in the right. Respect for right conduct is felt by everybody. If he would act in this sort of manner, on principle, consistently, regularly, their little minds would bend to his. And Mr. Knightley goes on to argue... Our amiable young man is a very weak young man, if this be the first occasion of his carrying through a resolution to do right against the will of others. He can sit down and write a fine, flourishing letter, full of professions and falsehoods, and persuade himself that he has hit upon the very best method in the world of preserving peace at home and presenting his father's having any right to complain. His letters disgust me. So now we know the depth of Mr. Knightley's feelings about Frank Churchill. Emma's response is, your feelings are singular. They seem to satisfy everybody else. But Mr. Knightley has an answer to that. I suspect they do not satisfy Mrs. Weston. They hardly can satisfy a woman of her good sense and quick feelings, standing in a mother's place, but without a mother's affection to blind her. It is on her account that attention to Randall's is doubly due, and she must doubly feel the omission. Had she been a person of consequence herself, he would have come, I dare say, and it would not have signified whether he did or no. So Mr. Knightley feels that Frank is indecisive, weak, and superficial, that he writes good letters but doesn't follow through on his obligations, that he knows what his obligations are, but he is too weak to carry them out. 
that he is able to make trips elsewhere and be with friends when it suits him. And so Emma and Mr. Knightley end up once again agitating each other. I will say no more about him, cried Emma. You turn everything to evil. We are both prejudiced, you against, I for him, and we have no chance of agreeing till he is really here. Mr. Knightley denies that he is prejudiced against Frank and retorts that he is a person I never think of from one month's end to another. And so they end on that note of disagreement about Frank Churchill's character and his social obligations. <laughs> 